0: Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim joins me to talk about Lunar New Year celebrations, to ring in the year of the rabbit, including the return of the very popular annual parade through Chinatown, a parade Vancouver's first Asian Canadian mayor attended as a child, and now brings his kids to. Canadian Music Hall of Fame and multi-Juno award-winning artist Bruce Coburn joins me to talk about his 50 years in music, some of his memorable moments, songwriting, being the father of an 11-year-old, what she's making him listen to on the school run, and why he's heading out on tour including seven stops in canada from victoria to winnipeg next month but first big tech companies continue to slash thousands of jobs with google the latest to announce big cuts today and canadian tech companies are doing the same what exactly is driving it will it leave the entire industry in better shape and when will the layoffs stop Well, it's been another bad day in the tech business google its parent company is laying off 12,000 workers or about six percent of its workforce it is the latest tech company to trim staff uh ceo sundar pichai said the parent company of google informed all staff at the silicon valley headquarters um in about an email in an email that's how they sent it out it's its biggest ever round of layoffs and it adds to the tens of thousands of other job losses recently announced by companies such as microsoft Amazon, Facebook's parent company Meta. There's other companies here in Canada as well that have uh, Hootsuite, for instance, that have uh, that have cut people, cut off, uh, cut jobs of late. Um, Marissa McNeilens from the Women's Tech Collective Toast says workers in the sector had more power to negotiate better salaries and rules in recent years, but when tech companies were really growing fast, but says now with the job cuts, workers have lost that upper hand.
1: For the last year and a half, two years, it's really been workers who have had the leverage and had the power and there was a shortage
2: and now we're kind of tipping it the other way.
0: Uh, indeed. Well, joining me now with more on this is Ritesh Kotak. He's a cybersecurity and technology analyst. Uh, thanks for joining us on this Friday night. Much appreciated.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So we last we spoke, we were like, well, how much longer can this go on for? And well, we have our answer now. 2023, I think it's nearly 50,000 jobs already. What exactly is happening? Because if this were any other industry, people would be would be would be crying, wondering what was going on. But here, here too, obviously. But that's a that's an awful lot of jobs.
2: Yeah, and it's a bit of an anomaly as well in the sense that it was tech companies because our entire world went went digital at the start of the pandemic. If we kind of go back to March 2020, where everything went online, and what they did was they, they did mass hiring and. They made a bet, and the bet was our lives are going to be completely virtual, our employees are going to be online, and the bets just didn't pay off. There are other bets as well that were made that didn't pay off as well um, or haven't paid off yet, Web3 being one of them, kind of the metaverse investment. Uh, you know, clearly all this stuff's going towards AI right now, but it seems like there's a consolidation and the bubble has burst.
0: Who's losing their jobs? Because I can imagine that there are sort of engineers and so on who are probably still employed at those places. But I, who exactly is is getting be getting shown the door right now? Do you think
2: it's going to be people in corporate roles that are probably that are losing uh, the majority of them that are losing positions? Uh, I've seen online uh, even people that I know that have lost positions uh, um, are in corporate roles. They're within HR, within marketing. Uh, within within these tech organizations, but there's still a shortage of good engineers, programmers, cybersecurity professionals, and companies are hiring. So I think they're kind of cutting on the corporate roles, and they're doing much more strategic hiring to meet their long-term goals.
0: Now, I know we always talk about the big names, uh, the big global names, but we've been seeing this happen in Canada too. There's been a whole rash of layoffs of late uh, for some big Canadian names
2: yeah and Canada' is not immune to it as well and even a lot of these tech companies uh they're laying off uh employees in Canada as well and we have seen the tech sector in in Canada essentially shrink some of the bigger the bigger companies have had to lay uh employees off and again it's always seems to be in kind of like these corporate roles the engineers and the people that are actually making the product sales uh sales roles they seem to stay but Um, It's these corporate roles, and it's kind of this trend. It's not just Canada. It's not just the U.S. Globally, tech companies are cutting.
0: Now, here in Canada, I know that you know companies like for instance, I just can think of one that Amazon made a big real estate uh, commitment in downtown Vancouver. I would imagine most of that would be the kinds of workers you're talking about. I know they've other companies have done so in other parts of the country. Are we going to see any sort of uh, domino effect from this or ripple effect from these layoffs into other parts of the economy as this goes on?
2: absolutely uh, there is a there is a ripple effect uh, anytime you, one job is lost, it impacts numerous other positions and yeah there is going to be a ripple effect it's also there's also another element to this as well and when you lay off people from the tech sector one thing i've learned and even the people that i know that have been laid off uh they are very innovative uh they're coming from a very innovative sector as well so we may see a lot of them kind of trying to spin up their own uh consulting firms or uh create their own tech companies themselves i guess um, and we ha- and we have seen some hint of that, but there. But in the short term, yes, there is going to be a ripple effect in the economy. Um, as with one, one cut, will have several different uh, implications as a result.
0: Yeah, because it feels like so much of that world, especially through the pandemic, was really dominated by the giants, right? The big, huge tech companies, they had a lot of work, huge workforces. We're seeing them consolidate a bit or at least uh, shed some of that now. But you're right. I mean, I can imagine, and this has been said repeatedly, a lot of the workers coming out of those companies are well equipped for uh, for other work.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, I know of several companies uh, during this during the pandemic that were just, growing at a, at an incredible rate, especially in the e-commerce side. Uh, last mile delivery is a great example. Um, a lot of companies that were looking at ways of of automating last mile delivery. Um, but then they were being bought out by bigger companies and then bigger companies as a result started consolidating because all of a sudden you had lower demand uh, as demand didn't keep up with what they thought it was going to be and a greater supply in the market. And that just creates pressure. Take to that the economic situation that we're currently living in as well that's great is a recipe for what we're seeing now
0: what about for investors because i'm sure investors will be happy to see these uh these companies uh cutting down on their spending cutting down on what was seen i guess as as a lot of excess when it came to staffing and the kinds of projects they were embarking on i mean these were some you know a lot of there was a lot of ambition going on in that world Uh, are we going to see them become a little more conservative now in the way they go forward especially the big ones
2: I, I think so. I think that's exactly what we're um, what we're seeing a lot of companies they want to hold on to they want to hold on to cash. Um, the easiest way is uh, looking at jobs that could be uh, that could be eliminated, clearly those high paying corporate the corporate roles. because um, they're thinking about the long term here and in the short term, lo- those investments just haven't haven't panned out. Like, we're talking about AI and there's been a lot of talk around gener- generative AI and how that's going to completely transform. Industries. Well, you're going to invest the money. You're not going to see a return right away. It takes time to bake that into the uh, into the current the current stack or the current offering that they give to that they give to their their clients. It it takes time. So that time is 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 money, and they got to figure out how they're going to pay for um, everything else to run their operation.
0: Yeah, it feels like this is sort of the um this is the 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 maturation of the sector to some extent. I mean, it's been kind of uh talked about and there was so many different strange stories going on about huge investments in startups and all kinds of money being poured into what were simply ideas on paper, really. And it feels like now that is slightly tra- this is transforming now into something that's more um more sort of in line with the way things normally work, if that's if if I could put it that way. That's a very non-expert way of putting it.
2: Yeah, but you're absolutely right, and I think that there were really high expectations. Uh, There were, um, you know, especially people investing in companies that even I would roll. I would be like, really? You really like this company? Um, But but you know, good good for them, right? Uh, But now in the short term, but in the long term, they they definitely weren't able to keep up with the hype.
0: And I guess, as you put it earlier, one of the benefits here could be that this could lead to new innovation because those leaving those jobs for big, huge multinationals, you know, the Amazons and the Googles and the Metas of the world, that when they go out and set off on their own, they bring ideas with them that they can then turn into the next big thing.
2: Yeah, these, by by nature, they're really innovative individuals. Um, and as long as they have the, they have an idea, um, it seems like a lot of these individuals that are being laid off, they're, it, it's not that the money just completely gets cut off. They get severance pay. They may get vacation pay. There'll be uh, um, termination pay potentially. So when you kind of take all, take all that and you give that to a highly motivated individual and there's other individuals in the same boat, uh, it, again, if I think that we are going to see some innovative ideas come forward because all that time when they said, hey, I wish we could do this. I wish that our organization would do that. Now they have an opportunity to do it and a lot of them do.
0: Wow but man you look at you look at the landscape these days and Twitter at all I mean it's just been, if you're not if you're not an expert as you are in this it looks it's been quite the, quite the six months and certainly quite the 2023 already uh, Ritesh Kotak as always thank you so much for your time
2: thank you so much for
1: having me
0: Well, you know what that sound mean, means? People around the world are getting set, into, set to ring in the Year of the Rabbit, or the New Year at least. It is Lunar New Year this weekend. Uh, it officially kicks off on Sunday the 22nd. When I first went to Beijing to work, we arrived right before. Lunar New Year was early that year. It's early again this year, right about this time. So we had just arrived after you know Christmas and New Year's, and we wanted to go right to work, of course, and got there. And then it I, I, having not been in China for Lunar New Year, I had to explain to my bosses that, wow, you know, the whole country is shutting down. I mean, literally people are, there are millions of people on the move. And we did stories on that, obviously. But it was such an incredible experience to spend Lunar New Year in Beijing that first time. Uh, the firecrackers, there were so many firecrackers going off that the next morning there was like a haze of smoke hanging over the city. It, I don't think they allow as much of it anymore. They really started to crack down on the noise and the pollution. But it was just sort of, it was like every holiday I'd ever seen, but much bigger and much brighter and much louder. And just the food, it was it was wonderful. And I always think of that every time Lunar New Year rolls around. Of course, there's all kinds of Lunar New Year celebrations going on here in BC, right across the country, right around the world. Um, it originated in ancient China, as we well know. And for many Asian cultures, it has become the most important festival of the year. I think it's estimated 2 billion people will mark this day, uh, celebrated in places including Vietnam, South Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Thailand, Japan, Philippines, and Indonesia. Um, It is the year of the rabbit, of course. Not everywhere. That's a little bit complicated, but we'll stick with the year of the rabbit. In China, a symbol of longevity, peace, and prosperity. People born in the year of the rabbit are believed to be vigilant, witty, quick-minded, and ingenious. And if you were born in 2011, 1999, 1987, 1975, 63, 51, or 39, it's your year, year. It's your year, year. And one place that is really gearing up to mark the occasion is Vancouver, because the annual Lunar New Year parade is coming back. Um, and it's a return after you know a pandemic-driven pandemic driven hiatus. Here is Success Board Chair Terry Young explaining all about it.
2: After hundreds of uh, Zoom meetings and,
0: you know, and and Chinatown, this neighborhood, you know, really hard hit by the pandemic and hate crime. I think it means a lot for the residents and and the businesses here to see the crowds come back. So just to give you an idea, 4,000 participants traditionally, 100,000 spectators have turned out uh, in the past. They're expecting that to happen again. One of the attendees tomorrow obviously will be Vancouver's recently elected mayor, Ken Sim, the first Canadian of Asian origin to hold that office, the first Asian Canadian to be Vancouver's mayor. His parents arrived in Canada from Hong Kong in the mid-60s, and his father used to bring him to the parade in the 70s. He's brought his own kids to the parade more recently as well. And it comes as the new mayor is promising to revitalize the city's historic Chinatown, as Terry Young was alluding to there, an area that has seen some tough years only exacerbated by the pandemic. And joining me now with more on all of it is Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Thank you for your time. Great.
1: Thank you very much for having me
0: it's It's you know lunar New Year has always been a big deal in Vancouver. It's great to see that the parade is coming back, which is probably I guess the highlight of it, and probably a big moment for you too i mean this is this year has added significance with your presence.
1: Yeah, well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, personally, you know, I'm just super excited about it. It's been, what, about three years since we've actually uh, had a parade in person. And I remember growing up in Vancouver as a little kid, my dad used to take me to the parade. And that's when they used to have, like, tons of firecrackers and stuff going on. And uh, now I have kids. And, you know, when they were smaller, we would take them to the parade all the time as well. So from that perspective, it's pretty cool. And then I think what you're alluding to as well is, um, I guess, I'm Vancouver's first mayor of Chicago. Chinese descent or Asian descent. And, you know, originally, you know, when I, when I first thought about it, I didn't think it was like, I I understood the significance of it, but it didn't really hit me till, you know, maybe about four days after the election and just all the people that would come up to me, uh, well, um, not just Asian heritage, but uh, immigrant uh, backgrounds who it, it meant a lot to them. And they actually saw that there was someone that looked like them that had the same lived experiences in that office. And so you know, this whole thing coming together, it it does have a lot more significance, not just me, but for entire communities.
0: Yeah, tell me about the, I mean, we'll talk about the parade broadly. It it is a very, if if anyone's never seen it, it is a very impressive sight, the Lunar New Year parade in downtown, through what is China's, uh, the historical Chinatown of Vancouver. What's it going to look like this year? I I gather it's going to be pretty massive.
1: Yeah, well, I I think so in general, um, I think a lot of people are going to be coming out. One of the great celebrations in the city of Vancouver, Chinatown Parade or not, it's just one of the most significant events in, uh, in our city. It's an exciting time
0: it is it is i mean it, it winds beyond chinatown by the way it sort of has a route that goes beyond it goes kind of through what is sort of da- parts of downtown vancouver or at least slightly off the downtown but it's certainly a very busy part of the city tell me about being going to the parade as a kid because that must have been uh was it an annual thing that you just did your dad brought you down you and your siblings
1: yeah well it, it wasn't just for the chinatown parade um or the chinese new year parade we used to go down there every single weekend and Every Lunar New Year, there would be a lot of celebrations in in addition to the parade. So it it brings back pretty fond memories of seeing uncles and aunties and kids and getting the little red licey uh, uh, envelopes with a couple of bucks in them. And, you know, you'd go and buy candy. So, you know, it it brings back a lot of uh, great memories. And back in the day and, you know, Chinatown, uh, Vancouver's Chinatown was a very vibrant place where, You know, the streets were crowded. You would literally have to jump off the sidewalk and walk along the road just to get by, it was so vibrant. And uh, in recent years, Chinatown has, you know, it's been struggling a little bit and then the the pandemic really uh, hit the neighborhood hard, but there's gonna be a bounce back. We're already kind of seeing it despite our challenges. uh, It's a big focus of ours at City of Vancouver to invest, uh, to revitalize the entire neighborhood because it, you know it's important it's important for the community it's important for Vancouverites and it's also important to our country like this is not chinese history this is canadian history this is a very vibrant community deep in canadian history and uh, we're looking forward to writing the next chapter of that incredible history
0: yeah I, and i look forward to we'll we'll talk about that too because you've announced some plans to try to revitalize i think Most people who've been to Vancouver have probably set foot in that part of town and could probably picture it. And it has fallen on a hard, on slightly harder times of late. Um, But tell me a bit about, about growing up with new year, lunar new year itself. Do you, I mean, there's always food. You you talked about the Hongbao just now, the red envelopes with the money inside. I thought that was an incredibly cool tradition, When I first got one, um, which was much, much later than that. What about the food? Any good memories of, of the food?
1: Yeah, you, you know it, uh, it. It wasn't just during Chinese New Year. It was like basically every weekend, right? And yes. sort of, I'll use the Chinese word, uh, words. You know, we used to have dan tat which is a, a dessert. Uh, the, egg, a, the
0: egg tarts. Yeah, those
1: egg tarts. Yeah, and there'd be siu bao, so pork buns, and. I always liked, I, I love sweet and sour pork. So, you know, it, it's sort of a Westernized kind of thing, but it, you know, that, that was Chinatown. That was great. And, um, also the, the smells around Chinatown back in the days, because, you know, there's like, there are a lot of, like, it seemed like every, every store sold vegetables or had chasio or, or, or right. pork in, in, in the window. So like the smells uh, that you'd have as well, it's uh, it's all these things that sort of came together and brought back really fo- uh, fond memories of our childhood.
0: Right. Have you brought your kids to the parade?
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah.
0: What's that like? uh, they were a little, uh, the
1: first time I brought them, they were a lot smaller. So their eyes were wide open and, and they did get freaked out a little bit by the the dragons. Cause it was the first time I, I think uh, the first time I went with my kids, uh, we only had two at the time. Now we have four uh, and they're two and four years old. And so they were kind of freaked out, but they've uh, gotten to, you know, as time's gone on, they, they love it. Uh, they're super excited. And let's just be honest. They're really excited about the red on. Om- Uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) who who wouldn't be you know i even since you were a child i I know it's probably hard to remember back i mean hard to remember back but you know i can't really remember many things from things that happened in the you know early 80s but it feels like the crowd must have changed it feels like now the 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 lunar new year parade is a full-on complete vancouver from every walk of life every background heads down for that parade
1: yeah. And, you know, that, that's Vancouver. And I'm sure, you know, that's Toronto. That's a lot of our major cities. Uh, before Chinese New Year was, uh, for the most part for Chinese people with a couple of, you know, uh, tourists or, uh, locals, uh, thrown in just like a uh, Visakhi parade, uh, would have been. And now these things are, you know, we're, you know, it, Vancouver, you know, Canada is a lot different than it was in the 1970s. And so, you know, we uh, we celebrate uh, the diversity of our cultures and lived experiences, and we lean right on in. So when you come to uh, the Chinatown Parade, you're going to see people from all walks of life, from all different cultural backgrounds, celebrating the diversity that's Vancouver. And on this weekend, it will be the Chinatown Parade or Vancouver- the Lunar New Year. Parade. The Lunar
0: New Year parade, right. Vancouver's Mayor Ken Sim is with us this half hour. We're talking about Lunar New Year. Of course, always lots going on in Vancouver uh, over the weekend uh, that is Lunar New Year. It, sh- it shifts, right? It's, it's not always the same time. So this year, it's a little bit early. Uh, here we are still in January. Uh, but just the other day, you were talking about plans to revitalize Chinatown. I know you you launched your campaign in Chinatown to become mayor. You were back giving a speech not long after you were elected. You were there again to talk about these plans to revitalize. What what do you think about about Chinatown needs to be preserved? Because in many cities, it's simply gone to other parts of the city. It's moved out and moved on. Why do you think it's important that Vancouver maintain um, a vibrant historical Chinatown?
1: Yeah, there, there's probably about 70 different reasons why. Um, from a purely selfish perspective, uh, I love the neighborhood, and actually, so do a lot of other people. And it it brings back a, a very fond memories. Uh, it's also a place where you know people can sort of get together. It's it's one sort of what six square block area where we celebrate Chinese culture and although businesses and neighborhoods or Chinese businesses let's say have spread to the suburbs and what have you um, this is one big focal point. It's also from uh, an economic vibrancy sort of tourism business perspective it makes a lot of sense. It's a destination for tourists um, and it brings a vibe to our city. You know you have lots of great restaurants and neat little things there where people will want to go spend money but also um, you know, when you're attracting businesses and let's say technology, we have issues to deal with, let's say with affordable housing and safety, but also people uh, or companies when they're looking to relocate to cities to attract people, they want to, um, you know, go to cities where uh, we call them team members, but employees, they want to, you know, you know, hang out. In. And so it ticks a lot of boxes.
0: And I can imagine also bringing back a bit of that vibrancy. You'd mentioned the safety issue already, of course, during the pandemic, we saw a rise in anti-Asian attacks in many places. And I know there's been concern amongst, especially the elderly population in and around Chinatown, that bringing back a more vibrant Chinatown would would ease some of the, would would provide a better sense of security to some.
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's multifaceted. Um, You know, when you have more people in an area on the streets, that helps. When you have better lighting, that helps. When you have a reduction in graffiti and, you know, broken windows, uh, that helps. When you have an increased presence of, let's say, you know, empathetic police officers or mental health uh, professionals that are, you know, dealing with other challenges that are affecting uh, the neighbourhood and surrounding neighbourhoods, that helps. So there's no one silver bullet, but if we can do a bunch of these different things, um it 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 definitely helps and so you know not to get political here but at at city hall um um one thing we uh made a focus was to invest in that neighborhood. And so we've launched strategies around um, hiring more uh, police officers and mental health nurses to provide the empathetic, more relevant care that people need. We're investing in, uh, investing in graffiti removal, uh, street cleanliness, uh, where we want to make it easy for businesses to do business uh, in Chinatown. You know, there's a whole host of things that we're working on, and that's just the start. Oh, the other thing we're going to do, I believe in uh, putting your uh, money where your mouth is, is. that in also includes being in the neighborhood and so we're opening up a satellite city of Vancouver office where elected officials including myself will be going down there on a regular basis so we can actually see firsthand what's going on what's working what needs improvement and it's going to be iterative so you know things change over time and we need to be able to react, uh, react in real time and that's what we intend to do.
0: Yeah. And for for listeners who aren't in Vancouver, anytime you see footage of that Lunar New Year parade, you'll see parts of those changes, I'm sure, in the background as it happens. Uh, Ken, you and I are born in the same year. So I figured I would look up what 2023, what the year of the water rabbit would hold for us. And it's good news, Ken. It says we're both dogs. (laughs) I mean that in our lunar calendar sense. Uh, We'll be favored by luck in the year of the water rabbit. Most aspects of our lives will see growth. Which will make us extremely happy. So, there you have it. Well, happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year to you, too. Gung uh, Hei Fa Choi.
0: Gung Hei Fa Choi to you, yang Kwai Uh Ken Sim, thank you so much. Great, thank you. 50 years in the music business is a long run for anyone. Bruce Corbin's been doing it for longer than that. Uh, he released his first album all the way back in 1970. He's had 20 platinum and gold albums since, or total. 13 Juno Awards, 33 Juno nominations. That puts him ninth on the all-time list, tied with other Canadian legends such as Gordon Lightfoot, Jim Cuddy, Shania Twain. He's, of course, a member of the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, has been since the early part of this century. Uh, The 76-year-old's latest album is called Rarities. It's a collection, as the title would suggest, it's a collection of tracks previously only available on his very limited edition Rumors of Glory box set. And he has new material ready, for a new album that's going to be released later this year. He's, of course, best known in this country, as I was mentioning earlier. We all, I think, remember the first Bruce Coburn track we heard. Mine was Wondering Where the Lions Are, because at the very moment when I was about eight or nine and discovered Top 40 and the charts, it was a big hit. Um, And it was a Canadian hit on American Top 40. I remember that vividly. So I remember that being my introduction. What a great introduction that was to Bruce Coburn's music. Uh, But again, he lives in San Francisco now with his wife, his 11-year-old daughter, who he talks about. Uh, His tour, again, kicks off in California, but makes stops in Victoria, Vancouver, Kelowna, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, and Winnipeg. The final stop of the scheduled tour was supposed to be a concert alongside David Crosby in Santa Barbara, California, on the 22nd of February. Of course, Crosby passed away yesterday at the age of 81. So I started our chat by welcoming Bruce to the show and asking him about the the death of David Crosby.
3: Glad to be with you, Ben. Thanks for asking.
0: You know, I was uh, preparing, just reading a lot of stuff yesterday, watching some videos. YouTube, obviously, all your stuff's on YouTube, which is, which is uh, you know, in some ways a real blessing if you're just digging into the digging into the crate, so to speak. And I saw some pictures of some images of you playing with David Crosby back in 1988 in Montreal, uh, playing If I Had a Rocket Launcher. And uh, I was wondering, I mean, you've obviously crossed paths over the years. I think you had a date coming up uh, that you were going to play together. Tell me a bit about him.
3: Yeah, I... We- that, that path crossing has not been very frequent, but first time I met him was that event in 1988. It was a benefit for International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which uh, was a charity that Crosby, Stills, and Nash were strongly supportive of. They were headlining the show, and it was me and Michel Rivard, a Le Quebecois singer-songwriter, a very right. good artist, and, uh, and a band from Russia whose name I can't recall. Crosby liked the the song if i had a rocket launcher they decided they were going to join me on stage to sing on it and so they did <laughs> it was a lot of fun but uh, i mean as much as you can say a song like that could be fun we've run into each other a few times over the years but but not played together i was actually really looking forward to this thing coming up that you mentioned it was a uh, it's in santa barbara california the, I, I i was a fan of the birds, and uh I was certainly aware of Crosby Stills and Nash and then Crosby stills Nash and young and and the songs that they made popular remain so there you hear them all the time you know i i, I mean I assume probably that he just kept at it and because he was good he, he you know he was able to to keep it working,
0: yeah, which i mean which brings us to your to a tour as well i mean it's it's amazing to think now. Back to the '70s and the '80s, when when everyone when was, you know, when this music was first, a lot of this these records were being made, and here we are, f- you know, 50 years later after the, well, I guess it's a few years now that True North uh, celebrated its 50 years, but you're heading back out on tour. What made you decide that this was a, a good time to hit the road and see see crowds again?
3: Uh, ah, it's what I do for a living. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much. I mean, there's there's lots of things around this that can be said. As well to answer your question, but um, we toured a lot last year. Also, that was the big, you know kind of the big opening after the two years of inactivity. The vibe was actually really great. A room full of people all kind of looking at each other, going, "Can we really do this?" And a really wonderful sense of kind of having come out from under things. And uh, I don't know if that'll still persist uh, this year, but it certainly was, was there, you know, in, in 2022, but really, I mean, I, you know, I tour, that's what I do, as I said, for a living. And so it's nice to be doing it again.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, is it different for you up on stage? Cause I, I know I've been to some shows this year and last and you're right. There's kind of a different thing. There's sort of a, um, there's a bit of abandon that wasn't there for a while. And I think we sort of lost our, we didn't know what we had until it was gone. During the height of the pandemic, when we couldn't go see live music anymore, what's it like to be on stage and face that?
3: It's exciting, actually, because there's a very positive vibe, and so far it's been that way. Anyway, of that people bring to the shows, like they just there's so, so much enthusiasm that it it's palpable from the stage. I'm there doing what I've always done. It's not routine. It's never been routine. You know, I, the main difference is, is what comes from the audience. I mean, each audience has its own kind of pers- collective personality, in a way.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And 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 w- when you're on stage, you kind of play to that personality. It's less true in a small venue, uh, like a coffee house, or even worse, somebody's living room, where you're in, you're looking <laughs> people right in the eye. More of a sense of the individuals involved. But when you're in a concert hall or or uh, any large venue, then the the audience kind of assumes a collective personality that that you can feel and and what when a show works it it works as a kind of there's a there's a bond that forms between me as the performer and that that collective identity
0: yeah i've noticed too that um you know i went to see i think it was the b52s they were on their final tour last year in in, uh, in vancouver and i was shocked by by just how there were so many different age groups there it must be interesting to look out into that crowd and see you know obviously the kind of people you might expect to see um at an art you know for for an artist who's been around for for a while but but also to see new generations out there as well who've grown to appreciate your music which would be something you might not know if you were sitting at home
3: that's true it's really great actually to see that the audience isn't just getting stronger and stronger cob cobweb links to the wall it's a fate that we don't hope for uh, to when when you get old as an artist, like that your audience, I mean, I'm very happy that some of my audience is as old as me or even older and and still coming to the shows. but but it's uh, it's really nice to see some some uh, young, yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting to me because I don't think, like when I was growing up, I, the last thing I wanted to do was go see a show by any of the people my parents thought were great. They weren't big music fans in general, but, you know, my dad was a Bing Crosby fan, sort of. And would I want to go see a Bing Crosby concert? Well, I might now, but I wouldn't have back then. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's actually really gratifying that that these younger people have grown up with the music and still like it.
0: Yeah, I don't think, yeah, I don't think my dad would have gone to see a Percy Faith concert back in the day. Um, But you know, one of the things I found interesting, looking at back at so I was listening to some of some of, you know, songs from the early 80s that uh, the trouble with normal, of course, and then Ghost Town, you know, the the lead singer, of the specials just passed away. Um, The Clash, uh, obviously, even even Springsteen, Mellencamp, uh, Billy Joel, even there was a lot of songs that sort of had a lot of, a lot of meaning to them that were recorded in that period of time. And I don't want to sound like a like an old person now at fifty two, but I feel like there's less of that music out there, and maybe that's what the appeal is—that this was music that had a message without being too without being preachy either. You know, it was sort of a an interesting time in music, and you were right in the middle of it.
3: Yeah, I listen to pop radio when I drive. I have an eleven year old daughter who I drive to school. She likes she's into the pop music of now, so we've we have that kind of radio on, and and I hear the stuff on the radio. I'm, You know, some of it's nice, and some of it's one or two songs actually that I that you hear over and over again are actually pretty good. A lot of it isn't, but that's always been true of of kind of mainstream pop. You know, from a songwriter's point of view, at least, there's there's not a not a great emphasis on brains in those songs. You get some great dance grooves, and you get some sometimes really musical voices. Louis Capaldi came on the radio this morning, and there's the the song they're playing currently of his. not sure what the title is but uh, just his voice and a piano the whole record who, who would have imagined hearing that on am radio even in the 80s or i mean anytime after maybe i don't know when really it's interesting that this that something like that can be a hit i don't know what that means about where things might be going it might mean a good thing uh, because i'm getting kind of tired of artificial drums
0: yeah, I guess what's so interesting about it, and I think about the 50th anniversary of True North Records, which was a few years back, but you're celebrating it now, was that it was when you were talking about Louis Capaldi and sort of this idea of, of kind of the bedroom albums, right? So you just, you think about Billie Eilish, who sort of the, the ability of artists now because of technology to make great sounding records with very little money in very small places. That just wasn't the case back in the day. And, and the whole True North story was pretty remarkable that you managed to... Help make that happen and create a space in Canadian music for the kind of music that you wanted to play, and clearly other people wanted to hear.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I back then it just seemed like the thing to do. I, the, I wanted to make an album so that I could get rid of the songs that were choking up my head. i have written, I've been writing all these songs. This is in, in nineteen sixty nine, let's say, uh, and and leading up to that. I was desperate to get to create kind of space for new songs to come in because I had a, I had a, most of the songs I'd written were dribble and and will mercifully never be heard by anyone. But but there were a few good ones and and uh, you know I just needed to make room for more. But and it was a naive thought, of course, because when you record songs, that isn't what happened We'll make you sing them over and over. But anyway, we got one thing led to another, and I ended up hooking up with Gene Martinick, who produced the album, and Bernie Finkelstein, who Wanted to start a record company, so that album, my first album, was the first album on True North Records, and that was we recorded it in late 1969, came out in '70. So that so 2020 was supposed to be the 50th anniversary, and, and it was, but nobody was touring, so we had to wait a couple of years. That started all through all through last year. We were kind of doing the 50th anniversary tour. I'm not sure I can still think of it that way now because although there's lots of places that we didn't get to uh, at that point. But all this time later, I mean, my album, that first album was deliberately simple. I just wanted to make an album like the people whose albums I loved listening to, like like the old country blues guys, Mississippi, John Hurt or Bill Brunsey or Brownie McGee and Sonny Terry. I wanted it just an album of me playing songs, which was very convenient for somebody that wanted to start a record company and needed, you know, Needed to come up with money from somewhere. It didn't take much. So we, we got it started and it went on from there. The, the CRTC regulations that required Canadian content came along at a very timely, in a very timely way for me and other people that were starting out around the same time because there wasn't any Canadian record industry to speak of. I mean, there were big record companies there to market American stuff in Canada. The, nobody was really supporting Canadian artists on that front and but when the regulations came in all of a sudden overnight there was a Canadian music industry and Bernie my manager was very adept at navigating that industry and became an integral part of it and you know so I think that as much as anything else has allowed me to keep doing what I do and and have a public profile doing it.
0: My first memories of, of your recordings, I mean, I guess I must have been listening to, I must have discovered Top 40 Radio when I was about eight. My dad was in the music business, but I kind of we had lots of records in the house always. But I think it was when, wondering where the Lions are hit American, when I heard Casey Kasem say your name, I think, and that was the age you're at, right? Not too much younger than your daughter is now. When you're really into pop music, it matters to you. And I remember hearing you on American Top 40 and, and realizing you were Canadian. I think you might've been one of the first Canadian artists I was ever aware of to hit the charts. And I thought it was such a big deal what was it like for you as an artist to to see that sort of i mean you you started off in 1970 with sort of an idea of making an album you know nine years later you know you're on billboard
3: yeah it's interesting because i mean the pattern had been like around the time i was starting out for artists to go to the states and get famous and then they'd be accepted in canada that was true of uh, of neil young of Joni mitchell of uh, leonard cohen to some extent uh uh, he was pretty known as a Canadian writer before he made a record. The exception was Gordon Lightfoot, who kind of really had a profile in Canada more than anywhere else at first, and then it spread from from there. But but uh, I just felt like having to go somewhere else to get a stamp of approval and then come back to your own country seemed like a dumb thing. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to, to establish whatever audience I was going to get in Canada before before I looked elsewhere. And that's that's what we did. And by the end of the seventies, I had a national audience in Canada, and that's really kind of what gave "Wondering Where the Lions Are" the the energy to be a hit, I guess. And then then it got on the Billboard charts in the States. So well, There was a lot of there was some peculiar maneuverings <laughs> done by the American record company to get that to happen. But <laughs> but uh, in, in effect, the plan worked because. You know I, it wouldn't have worked if I'd have been in a hurry to get a lot of money soon fast it, or to become very famous overnight quote unquote I didn't have that ambition so it that let me off the hook in terms of having to go somewhere else to you know for, for that stamp of approval but but it worked very well in the end and and by the end of the of the 70s I was able to tour out at first limited to a limited degree and then more and more extensively. And that continues.
0: Yeah. And you live in the U S now, right? I mean, I think you became yeah. a U.S. citizen, obviously your family, you have a family there. Um, you were there for COVID. I gather you were there for, for the Trump years. Um, How has that been?
3: Uh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I had lived in the States in the sixties uh, uh, going to music school in Boston for a couple of years. And, uh, and I thought, I don't want to live in this country. This this is it's a ridiculous place. I mean, there's a lot of great things about the states. And, and growing up Canadian in, in the era when I grew up, we had a very ambivalent attitude about it. On the one hand, we were we felt superior because of our connection to Mother England, and uh, we felt uh, insulated from a lot of stuff. But at the same time, we envied American cars and guitars and music and and films and all that stuff. So, in the '60s in in, the, in Boston, it, it's, this is the middle of the Vietnam era. People were getting drafted. People were coming back from Vietnam in, in you know, deplorable condition, and and uh, terrible things were being done in that country. And uh, the atmosphere was very tense and and very kind of seemingly volatile. And I just wasn't comfortable in it. Time went by. I got I got used to being in the states because uh, from. 1980 onward, I've I've been touring in this country and made friendships all over the place, and eventually fell in love with an American and married her, and right. and, and we have a kid. Well, so you know it's home now as much as Canada. As Canada still feels like home in a deeper way, but but this is where I live, so you know, it's okay. I mean, the Trump era brought out all that same ugliness that was present in the Vietnam era, and it hasn't gone away. And I think and it's been exacerbated by the whole internet uh, world that has allowed people to feel that they can express uh, their distaste for things in the crudest and stupidest way and get away with it. And the tone of things is, is interesting, let me put it that way.
0: It's interesting when you mentioned it, because i read an article not that long ago about why there were no protest songs that came out of the last five or six years. I mean, you think back to the time that you were first in, in the US and in Boston, and you think about, you know, for what it's worth, or any of those great protest songs in the <laughs> 60s. And then you fast forward, you know, 50 years, and there was very little protest music out, at least not much that became mainstream in that whole era. Do you think the whole advent of social media and so on has sort of taken away the need, not the need for it, but at least the avenue for it, that people just don't feel um that so much is said so fast now that you don't actually need a song to kind of encapsulate the the national mood, so to speak.
3: That's likely a factor. I I, I don't know. My sense is that there's the people are writing those kinds of songs they're just not getting heard. The window's not open for that right now. I, I mean over the years I've seen it come and go a few times where as you said in the '60s, there was great tolerance for songs like that. I mean, it went to, to kind of gross extremes, like uh, sometimes a uh, "The Edge of Destruction" was that oh, the song? Eve, of, eve of destruction, yeah, the eve of, the eve of destruction, yeah. Like that's just, I mean, it's kind of a terrible song. Not that that was wrong to rant about that; they just didn't do it very well. But you know, it was, that was kind of an extreme of the commercialization of of the notion of protest. And then, you know, little by little, that window kind of closed. The media folks got tired of writing about that stuff, and the you know radio moved on to other things. So you know, every now and then, in the punk era, it came back. You could have songs that we didn't think of the same way because it wasn't American singers with acoustic guitars. It was it was reggae or rock bands, uh, and then that window kind of closed again, and everybody got interested in just making money, and that's what we heard all about. Or, or, or getting laid, and we heard about that, and and. Uh, which is, of course, a perennial. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I would imagine yeah, exactly. nobody ever gets tired of hearing about that. Apparently, no, yeah, no, but, yeah,
0: that that one's forever.
3: But um, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of artists who that have things to say about what's going on right now. But there's not AM radio that used to play pop music. Now is mostly talk. So you know, where do people hear that stuff? I don't know. I, I, Are there clubs? Not really, because COVID killed all the clubs. So,
0: yeah, I I was thinking back to the 80s, you know, even at the time when you were hearing sort of, um, you know, when when Scarecrow was out, so was Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which was a great song, but it sort of took the protest song to um, sort of more comical sides right you mentioned you mentioned clubs and so on you know the Vancouver Folk Festival is not happening this year are you when you look out at the landscape of I mean I I know this whole tour is booked but when you look at it about at the live music landscape is it getting is it getting tougher out there are you worried that a lot of those venues are going away the kinds of places you would have played 50 years ago
3: it's a concern I mean are they going away faster than me I'm not sure (laughs) I'm getting very old but but uh, I, you notice this, I mean after the shutdown now that everything's kind of coming back to life uh, there's an intense competition for those venues that are left in terms of booking them you know like you're trying to book a tour and everybody in the whole world is out there trying to book a tour at the same time it takes a lot of patience and negotiating on the part of management to uh, to set these things up and I think that may get worse. But I don't know. I mean, people want to hear live. People like to be out of their houses, and you know, if they're if they can be out without having to fear immediate death, so I don't think it's going to go away altogether. Right? I, I mean, the thing is, there's always bars, but bars are unless they're known for as music places, it's it's a tough gig playing in a bar because and and you can only play a certain kind of music. You can't play quiet, reflective music in a bar atmosphere. Whoever is able to make a living as a young artist now uh, is required to to do something other than quiet music. That doesn't mean it's it's going to be bad or anything, because there's all kinds of possibilities there still. But that one possibility has been kind of taken off the table. It becomes more competitive too, because you're competing not with other, just with other artists for space, but with the, with the audience for attention, uh, or with the bar lights, or with the you know whatever else is going on, the drunk in the corner. Yeah, it's tricky. I don't know where it's going to go. But it, but meanwhile, there's a, a lot of places have survived, and that's where I'm going to go.
0: Tell me a bit about this tour. What can, what can audiences expect uh, this time out? Because I know you have the Rarities uh, album that you're going to be playing. You also have the re-release of those records from the early days of True North. What do you want to be playing, and what do you hope the audience wants to hear?
3: I'm assuming that people want to hear the same stuff that they usually want to hear, which is... You know, the, the hits, the yeah. certain songs, yeah, the, the, yeah. not necessarily yeah. hits, but the songs that, that have become kind of uh reference points for for a lot of people. Uh, you know, songs that didn't necessarily get on the radio, but but our concert kind of favorites. There's there's half a dozen or so of those that will be always in the show, and uh, and then it's a matter of kind of working in around that a, a cross section of stuff, some older stuff, some. New stuff. Uh, we just finished making a new album that's going to mm-hmm. come out in May uh, of, of all new songs. So there, there'll be some of that in the shows as well. It's, this, the shows are these shows are solo shows. It's just me on stage, but uh, me and several guitars and and a bunch of words. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's, uh, yeah, yeah, but you talked a bit, the new albums coming out, you talked a bit about your songwriting is becoming more spiritual, which is an interesting way of looking. We started off talking about David Crosby. Uh, someone just texted me to say that someone, a friend of his on CNN, had been saying he'd spoken to David and he was looking forward to that concert that I think you, that you were playing in Santa Barbara near the end of February that he was, I don't think he played live much anymore. I think he said he was really looking forward to that day. You were saying that your stuff has become more spiritual now, that you sort of songs evolve with time. Song writing evolves with time.
3: Sure. I mean, I I, I the spirit's always been there, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's there on the first album, less specific than it than it has been at other times, maybe, but, but certainly there. You know, I write about life as I as I know it. <laughs> so that includes the spiritual, you know, it includes love songs, it includes you know, observations on thing, what people think of as political or social situations, uh, that all continues. I, I, my own sense of my relationship with the divine has certainly evolved over the years and continues to uh, in terms of what shows up in the songs. Uh, I guess that, that evolution is reflected there, too, if, if, if anybody wants to look for it. I'm not writing these songs to, to be a missionary, particularly. Uh, it's, it's because it's all part of life.
0: Having an eleven-year-old, you were talking earlier about your eleven-year-old daughter and her sort of controlling, playing pop in the car on the way to school. Does she have? Does she have a favorite Bruce Cobert song? <laughs> does she? Does she listen, like your stuff? I remember at that age, you know, of course, I rebelled against the music my dad listened to. You spoke earlier about not wanting to listen to the music that your parents listened to. What does your eleven-year-old think of of your songbook?
3: She has seen a lot of shows. She's. She's been coming on the road with. I mean, less so now because as she goes up through a school career and she doesn't have the same freedom of movement that that she did before earlier. But uh, she she came on tour for the first time when she was two months old. Wow! And uh, she I, we have a friend uh, uh, who comes along when uh, generally it, it, you need somebody there. I need somebody there to, to to help with her. If I'm, she can't just come on the road. She, soon she will be able to, but she's too young still. Uh, so somebody has to come out and kind of help look after her when my wife can't do it, which is most of the time. So we have a friend who comes, and uh, my daughter and and the, and our friend will take notes at the shows. They they listen to the sound checks. They make lists of so all the songs oh, wow. they sing. And and I mean, it, it, she's totally into it. How long that will persist now that she's discovered. Uh, yeah, a world of pop music with her peers where they're, they, you know, they, they talk about the latest records and, and who, who they want to dress like and all this sort of stuff. I mean, that's probably going to change, but it's, it's nothing like what the atmosphere was when I grew up. It's like, she, she's very aware of it. I don't know if she has a favorite song. She hasn't said lately that I can recall, but she, she does, she did approve of our choice for the new album though. She informed me of that.
0: Oh, good! <laughs> you need that seal of approval for sure, uh, uh, Bruce Cobert. Yeah. We look look forward to having you back uh, on this side of the border for uh, for these concert dates coming up. Uh, thank you so much for your time today.
3: I'm really looking forward to it too. Thank you.